Well, I want to thank, uh, first of all, Curtis for uh, preaching some pretty good stuff so far. <laughs> because that's exactly where I wanted to start this morning. Um, this, the scripture text that was just read for us this morning is one of the gospel accounts of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I want to take a few minutes this morning to tell the story behind the story of the resurrection. You see, without the crucifixion, without the cross, there would be no resurrection story. And the story of the cross begins at the beginning with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden when they chose to disobey God. Isn't it amazing? God told them when he placed them in the garden, you can do this and this and this and this and this. There's just one thing you can't do. And that's the thing they chose to do. They disobeyed God, and to disobey God is sin. So that that at that point, sin entered the world, and we've been dealing with the problem ever since. And you know, much of humanity tends to take a different attitude towards sin than God does. We have a tendency to laugh off sin, we minimize sin, we grade sin, we change the rules and say some things that God calls sin are not sin. But God is holy, He's perfect, He's sinless. Sin is serious business with God. He hates it, it is an affront to Him. He cannot tolerate and sin, tolerate sin, and sin separates us from God. If you know the story of the crucifixion, and, and Curtis just made reference to this, you remember that the Gospel writers Matthew and Mark both tell us that as Jesus hung on the cross at about the ninth hour, which would have been around, I think, three o'clock in the afternoon, he cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was bearing the sin of the world. And everything that Curtis mentioned and so much more that is sin, Jesus took upon himself on the cross. Your sin sins and my sins. And because Jesus became sin for us, God the Father had to look away. He had to turn His back on Jesus. You know God loves us? He understands the destructive nature of sin and He doesn't want it to separate us from Him. He wants a relationship with us. But we have a problem. Romans chapter 3 verse 23 tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. However, we live in a culture that says, I'm not a sinner, I'm a good person. And we see that, that attitude reflected in a song that was sung back in the late 60s by a guy named Norman Greenbaum. I don't know if any of you remember it. It was called Spirit in the Sky. And here's one of the verses from that song. Never been a sinner, I never sinned. I got a friend in Jesus. So you know that when I die, He's going to set me up with the Spirit in the sky. Oh, set me up with the Spirit in the sky. That's where I'm going to go when I die. When I die and they lay me to rest, I'm going to go to the place that's the best. Go to the place that's the best. Never been a sinner, I never sinned. Hmm. Well, here's what the Scripture says. <laughs> 1 John 1.8 and verse 10. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 
If we claim we have not sinned, we make him, God, out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. And folks, we've lived with that, or people lived with that problem for years and years and years. And, and, and what they did to deal with their sin was this continual process of offering sacrifices. Offering sacrifices in which blood was shed. Because that's how serious sin is. Only the death of something and blood shed could deal with sin. But there was nothing they could do, even with those continu- that continual process of sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, to deal with the issue of sin in their lives once and for all. But God had a solution. And we're going to take a bit of a flying trip through the Old Testament for a few moments this morning. Where, where we begin to see God reveal to us His plan to redeem us, to save us from our sin, to offer us forgiveness that the sacrifice of animals could never provide. Clear back in Genesis chapter 3, this, the Adam and Eve have sinned. Satan came to Eve in the form of a serpent and said, you know this fruit that God told you not to eat, the one thing he said don't eat, he's trying to trick you. It won't do any harm. Well, we know the story. And they ate it. And and so God now is speaking to the serpent. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Referring down the road to Jesus Christ and what he would do. He will crush your head. He's speaking to Satan. And you will strike his heel. He is going to die for our sins. We move up to Genesis chapter 2. And this is a story I really love. The story of Abraham and Isaac, the son of promise. The son through whom nations were to come. And God has said to Abraham as a test of his faith, I want you to take your son. I want you to sacrifice him. And so they make this journey to a mountain and it says Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac and he himself carried the fire and the knife and the two of them went on together. Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And prophetically, Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together, and the scripture tells us that's exactly what happened. As Abraham raised his knife to take the life of his own son, God stopped him. And there in the thicket was a ram that they were able to make a sacrifice of on that day. We move on into the book of Exodus. The people of of Israel have been in captivity in Egypt for 400 years. And God now has determined it's time for them to be released from captivity and return to what is their homeland. And God has sent these plagues against Egypt, but the, the ruler of Egypt, the Pharaoh, his heart is hard. And no matter what's happened, he has not released the captives of Israel to go home. 
And so it comes down to this final plague. And this plague is the death of the firstborn of all in Egypt, including the animals. And so God said to protect yourselves, to make sure that the firstborn of the people of Israel don't die, you must choose year-old male lambs without defect. And they are to be sacrificed. And they are to take some of the blood, God said, and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. And the scripture says, On that same night, I, God, will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood you the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over. Do you see the power of the blood? Already we're seeing uh, symbolically what God is going to do through the blood of Jesus. It's the blood, it was the blood that, that would, would save them from death. And if you move on to the book of Leviticus, there are all these regulations that God gave the people for sin offerings, for guilt offerings, and, and, and the Day of Atonement, what they needed to do, and all required the shedding of blood of unblemished animals without defect. Listen, folks, you couldn't go out to the flock or the herd and choose the sick one or one that was limping around. It was costly. It was the one that was the very best, the ones you would take to the fair to show off. That's the one you had to take and lay on the altar as a sacrifice. All required the blood of unblemished animals without defect. This, the, the solution for sin was the, the same every time. Blood had to be shed. The problem was that blood had to be shed over and over and over again. Because no shedding of animal blood could truly provide forgiveness for sins. In fact, in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, it says it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And so we move along in, in the history of the Old Testament and we hear Isaiah speaking. God has given him a vision of one who will come. And he wrote this, speaking of Jesus now, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds... We are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all. He bore all the sin of the world on himself when he died on the cross. It says he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is silent... So he did not open his mouth. A picture of Jesus Christ and what he would do for us on the cross. And we needed a Savior. For Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. <laughs> Be pretty depressing if that verse stopped there, wouldn't it? But it goes on to say, but the gift of God is eternal life 
in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so God came to earth in the form of His Son, Jesus Christ. Emmanuel, we sing about Him earlier. God with us. And Romans 5, 8 tells us, but God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners... Christ died for us. So many people out there think that to, to find favor with God, we've got somehow got to clean, or, clean up our act or do these certain good things or pay some kind of price. But it says here that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, it says, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. Remember that process of over and over again sacrificing. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, God provided the solution in Jesus Christ. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, In Him, in Jesus Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. And then in Hebrews again, chapter 7, verse 27, speaking of now the, the high priestly duties of Jesus Christ, he says, unlike other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day after day after day for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when Jesus offered himself. And in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, it says this. This is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Folks, to understand the resurrection, you have to understand the crucifixion. I remember a number of years ago, a song came out that really impressed me. It's called Watch the Lamb. Some of you may remember it. It's a somewhat fictionalized account of, of Simon the Cyrene who was made to carry the cross of Jesus. And in the song, it tells about him, this man and his two small sons going to Jerusalem. And they have a lamb with them. And just like they would have done in the Old Testament time after time, he brought this lamb during the Passover to sacrifice for his sins. But they get to Jerusalem and there's, there's just this turmoil and these crowds and, and angry people and they, they don't know what's going on. And so they stand along the way and here comes this man, beaten, bloody, broken, a crown of thorns on his head, barely able to stand. In fact, he collapses under the weight of the cross. And this man with his boy is, is pulled out of the crowd to take that cross. And the job of the two little boys while this is all happening is to watch the lamb that they've brought for sacrifice to Jerusalem. And so the song takes us through that process and the, 
And the cross is borne to Golgotha, the place of crucifixion. And Jesus is nailed to the cross. And in all of that, the two little boys say, Daddy, while all this was going on, the lamb ran away. And the father points to the cross and says, Dear children, watch the lamb. He got it. He knew what was going on. Maybe his understanding of an Old Testament scriptures all came together on that day and he realized what was happening here. We don't need lambs anymore. We have Jesus. He's the ultimate, once for all, perfect sacrifice for our sins. I believe this morning it's important that we take time, as Jesus commanded, to remember what it cost him to bear our sins on the cross. And in a few moments we'll be partaking of communion together. But before we do that, we are instructed in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, where it says, A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. And so the question we need to ask ourselves this morning is this. Do I believe that Jesus shed his blood for the forgiveness of my sins? Have I accepted what Jesus did for me and placed my faith in him as Savior? If you've never accepted Jesus as Savior, if you've never personally appropriated what he did for you on the cross when he shed his blood and died for the forgiveness of your sins and mine, and if this morning you know that now is the time, I, I have a prayer that I'd like you to repeat after me. You can pray silently, so bow your heads with me if you would. And if you'd like to pray this morning to accept Jesus as Savior, his once-for-all sacrifice for your sins, pray this prayer with me. Lord Jesus, I know I am a sinner. I know that I deserve the punishment you bore for me on the cross. I confess to you that I need a Savior. Please forgive me of my sins. Help me to turn from my own rebellious ways and walk with you in obedience and faith. I choose to turn my life over to you. Thank you for loving me so much that you died for me. Amen. With heads still bowed, if any of you prayed that prayer today, would you let me know quick by just quickly raising your hand and putting it down? Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. All right. You can. We're, we're going to continue now. If those who are serving us would come forward. Um, some brief instructions as you are served this morning. Once you receive the elements, please hold them. We will partake together. And gentlemen, you can go ahead and begin. The resurrection. You may have never heard of Sir Lionel Lucku. Anybody familiar with that name? 
But if you open the Guinness Book of World Records, you dis- you'll discover that he is listed as the most successful trial lawyer ever. He had 245 successful murder defenses in a row. Now, to kind of put that in perspective, I want you to think about the Perry Mason series. Remember Perry Mason? Producers had him lose a case after 70 successful ones because they didn't think anyone would find his character credible without a loss now and again. And yet this man, Lionel Lucku, won 245 in a row. And although this man, Lionel Lucku, had fame, success, and wealth, he felt empty inside. The older he got, the more meaningless life seemed to him. At age 63, he turned his analytical skills to the claim that Jesus rose from the dead. He found that the message of Jesus' resurrection satisfied his personal needs and intellectual questions. He wrote, I have spent more than 42 years as a defense trial lawyer in many parts of the world. I say unequivocally, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. Rudyard Kipling wrote the book, the, the Jungle Book. And you remember the character Mowgli, the man cub, and at one point he asks the animals, what's the most feared thing in the jungle? He's told that when two animals meet on a narrow path, that one must step aside and let the other pass. The animal that steps aside for no one then must be the most feared. Mowgli wants to know what kind of animal would that be. One tells him it's an elephant. Another tells him it's a tiger. Finally, the wise old owl exclaims, the most feared thing in the jungle is death. It steps aside for no one. Well, folks, on that first Easter morning, death did step aside for Jesus Christ. The great stone that sealed the tomb in which Jesus had been laid was rolled away, and out came life. You know, in the passage that was read for us this morning, um, the last verse that Gail highlighted says this, verse 9, They still did not understand, those who were at the tomb that morning, that Jesus had to die or excuse me, had to rise from the dead. He had to die. He had to rise from the dead. Stan Toller, pastor and author, writes, The resurrection story isn't a story within a story. It is the story. We are so familiar with Easter stories that we have difficulty perceiving the complete surprise and utter astonishment of the early disciples at the resurrection of Jesus. Can you imagine walking up to that empty tomb that morning? We view the empty tomb from a perspective of Scripture, knowledge, and history 2,000 years removed. Not so with Mary, Peter, and John. And again, in verse 9, they still did not understand from the Scripture that Jesus 
had to rise from the dead. They did not understand, and sometimes neither do we. Jesus had to rise from the dead? Had to? Yes, he had to. Why? Well, first of all, Jesus had to rise from the dead to break the bonds of death. You know, funerals tend to be pretty sober events. As a pastor, I've stood at the side of many graves. That final resting place for what the Apostle Paul calls our earthly tent, this thing that we live in. If the grave marked the end of life, if the grave marked the end of life, how hollow would be the words I speak and the scriptures I read and the prayers I pray? The saddest funerals of all are for those who did not put their faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. Yet for those who believe like John on that first Easter morning, you remember, as we read this morning, he looked inside and he believed. For those who believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, the funeral, though sad, reminds us of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Yet, yet at the very mention of death, some people cower in fear. They begin to look for ways to avoid it. For example, Sarah Winchester's husband had acquired a fortune by manufacturing and selling rifles. After he died of influenza in 1918, she moved to San Jose, California. Sarah was convinced that the dead souls of the many Indians who had lost their lives because of Winchester rifles haunted her. Sarah sought out a medium to contact her dead husband. The medium told her, as long as you keep building your home, you'll never face death. Sarah believed the spiritist, so she bought an unfinished 17-room mansion and started to expand it. The project continued until she died at the age of 85. Because it didn't work, did it? It cost $5 million at a time when workmen earned 50 cents a day. The mansion had 150 rooms, 13 bathrooms, 2,000 doors, 47 fireplaces, and 10,000 windows. And Mrs. Winchester left enough materials so that they could have continued building for another 80 years. Today that house stands as more than a tourist attraction. It is a silent witness to the power that death has to hold millions of people in fear. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, it says that a solution was needed to free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For quite some time, death had had a stranglehold on people's lives. But Jesus broke the bonds of death on resurrection morning. A little boy and his father were driving down a country road on a beautiful spring afternoon. Suddenly, out of nowhere, a bumblebee flew in the car window. I remember when our youngest was little, it didn't matter what it was. If it flew, it was a bee. 
Since the little boy was deathly allergic to bee stings, he became petrified. But the father quickly quickly reached out, grabbed the bee, squeezed it in his hand, and then released it. But as soon as he let go, the young son became frantic again as it buzzed around him. His father saw his panic-stricken face. Once again, the father reached out his hand, but this time he pointed to it. There stuck in his skin was the stinger of the bee. Do you see this, he asked? You don't need to be afraid anymore. I've taken the sting for you. And that's the message of Easter. We do not need to be afraid of death anymore. Christ faced death for us. And by his victory, we are saved from sin. Christ has taken the sting. As Paul says, where, O death, is your sting? Christ has taken the stinger for us. He has risen. Fear is gone. New life is ours. The second reason Jesus had to rise from the dead was to give us victory over death. Former pastor and author Warren Wiersbe writes, A dead Savior cannot save anybody. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is as much a part of the gospel message as his sacrificial death on the cross. The resurrection proves that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be, the very Son of God. If If Jesus were not bodily resurrected, he was not God, nor Savior, and Christianity is a lie. But he was resurrected from the dead. And everything Jesus said he was, and everything he did, was validated when he rose in victory over the grave. The famous Baptist pastor D.L. Moody used to say, Someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody is dead. Don't believe a word of it. At that moment I shall be more alive than I am now. And Paul writes in Romans chapter 6 verse 9, For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, He cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. And it would tell you today, nor does it have mastery over those who have received Jesus Christ as Savior. In his book, Therefore Stand, Wilbur Smith points out that all the religions of the world, those that are based on personalities and philosophies, the only one that talks about an open and empty tomb is Christianity. Abraham, regarded by the Jews as the father father of their faith, died 2,000 years before Christ did. Although he died with faith in God's promises, he, he himself could lay no claim of his own to have power over death. In fact, his tomb is still carefully preserved in Hebron, in southern Palestine. In the sacred books of Buddhism, it says that when Buddha died, it was with the utter passing away in which nothing, whatever, remains behind. Muhammad, the founder of Islam, died at Medina in 632 A.D., and that's where he's still buried. All of their bones lie in the dust of death. 
Even Mary Baker Eddy, the founder of the Christian science movement, a theosophical cult who claimed that there was no such thing as death, lies buried in a tomb outside of Boston where thousands of believers visit her grave. There's only one whom death could not hold. Only one. He's the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever, whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we are given victory over death, our final enemy. The empty tomb declares that we have hope in Jesus Jesus' victory over the grave empowers the believer to face the uncertainties of life with confidence. And perhaps the biggest uncertainty is death itself. It creates a lot of fear. And next to speaking in public, did you know that? That's the number one fear that people have, supposedly. Next to speaking in public, facing death is the, is the number one phobia in people today. But knowing the outcome... Calms our fears. You know, we've just come through March Madness. I don't know how many of you are basketball fans, but let's say your favorite basketball, college basketball team is in the NCAA tournament. And they make it through the first round and whatever, and find they're in the uh, uh, Sweet 16 and then the Elite 8 and then the Final Four and it comes down to, to the championship game and your team is still in it. My team was, well, almost in it this year, but they got that. And so the final game is going to be broadcast. And, you know, it's March Madness, but you're kind of feeling some madness, too. You're nervous and anxious. And what if you knew the outcome of the game before it started? What if you knew that your team would win? Would that kind of ease your nervousness and fear about the outcome? Sure it would. I mean, you, you could sit there and you could really relax and enjoy the game instead of, oh, and you know what we go through. Those who believe that God raised Jesus from the dead know how the game ends. The resurrection of Jesus Christ takes the unknown out of death. The hope of the believer in Jesus Christ is that death is no longer a giant to fear. We have victory. And then Jesus had to die from the dead to give us new life in the face of death. To give us new life in the face of death. The reality is that people around Jesus were all changed because of the resurrection. Mary's tears of heartbreak turned to speechless celebration because of the resurrection. Peter, John, and the other disciples, once fearing for their lives as they huddled behind locked doors, are transformed because of the resurrection. Thousands began to believe, and then millions because of the resurrection. In time, over the last 2,000 years, lives Cultures, even nations, have been changed because of the resurrection. During World War I, a group of wounded men were huddled together in a trench. 
One of the men had been terribly wounded and he knew he did not have long to live. He had a friend with him, one who had already seen a bad start to a bad life. He'd made many wrong decisions. He'd already served time in prison. In fact, the police wanted him when he returned home. The wounded and dying man pulled the wanted man down close to his face. He took his own dog tags, his ID chain, and pressed it into the hand of his buddy. Listen, you've led a bad life, he said. Everywhere you were wanted by the police. But there's, there are no convictions against me that I'm not wanted for anything. My name is clear, so here, take my dog tag, take my wallet, Take my papers, my identity, my good name, my life, and quickly hand me your papers that I may carry your crimes away with me in death. Folks, Jesus took our sins, our past, our failures, our hurts with him in death. He took our place. But on Sunday, he rose from the dead. Now he makes a life-changing offer to us. I've taken your sins. My life was sacrificed for your old life. Now I want to give you new life. I read a story about a family that tragically lost three of their four children within just two weeks to a deadly virulent disease. One child was left, a four-year-old boy, The family had just buried the third child two weeks before Easter. On Easter morning, the parents and the remaining child went to church. The mother taught her Sunday school class about the resurrection of Jesus. And the father read the story, the Easter story, as he led the opening Sunday school devotion. People who knew about their great loss wondered, how could they do this? One family of the church were in the car on their way home after church when their 16-year-old son asked his father, Dad, that couple must believe everything about the Easter story, don't they? Of course they believe it, said the father. All Christians do. Then the teenager said, but not like they do. Julie and I pastored on the Oregon coast for six years. We had a, this wonderful young family in our church. Very involved, faithful followers of Jesus Christ. And one day, the mother, the wife, and her eight-year-old daughter were returning from Portland, where they'd been for a doctor's visit. And it's a two-lane road when you come over the the, cast, uh, the, the coast range from Portland, it's two-lane road. And they crossed the center line and hit a semi head-on, and the mom and daughter were both killed. And I remember um, I did the, the funeral service in the high school gymnasium because they were well-known in the community, and there was a huge crowd. But then we went out to the cemetery to do the graveside, and I went through that ceremony. And the wife, her name was Wendy. Her dad came up to me afterwards, and this is what he said. It's all right. We believe in the resurrection. 
Folks, the empty tomb made the difference. It turns night into day, despair into hope, death into life. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. He wants you to let him live at the center of your life, giving you purpose and meaning, hope and healing, peace, pardon and power in the face of everything that you come up against. He wants to be the risen Lord of your life. Dr. David Siemens tells of a Muslim who became a Christian in Africa. Some of his friends asked him, why did you become a Christian? Well, he answered, it's like this. Suppose you're going down the road and suddenly the road forked in two directions and you didn't know which way to go. And there at the fork in the road were two men, one dead and one alive. Which one would you ask which way to go? (laughs) John 17, verse 3, and this is the way to have eternal life, to know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. And then 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 through 13. And this is what God has testified. He has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. So whoever has God's Son has life. Whoever does not have His Son does not have life. I write this to you who believe in the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life because Jesus rose from the dead. Praise God. So this morning, is death still the most feared thing in the jungle? Or do I, do you share in the victory of Christ? resurrection. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, today is a day when we celebrate the greatest victory ever won. It was the defeat of sin. It was the defeat of hell. It was the defeat of Satan and even death in the grave. And we're rejoicing this morning, Lord Jesus, because of what you did for us, not only on the cross, when you shed your blood for our sins, but your resurrection from the dead that proved who you were and that everything you said was true. And my prayer this morning is that we will live in the power and the freedom and the joy and the victory and the life of the resurrection because that is life that is truly life. And Lord Jesus, we pray these things in your name. Amen. I'm sure there are a lot of songs that we have not sung and are not going to sing this morning. (laughs) But there are a couple songs that we just have to lift our voices and, and rejoice because He lives. Stand with us this morning. Let's close as we lift our voices and our hearts and prepare to go out into the world to let them know that we serve a risen Savior. God saved His heart. They called him Jesus. He came to love, heal, and forgive.